You can go ahead and turn in your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 8. As I'm sure that all of you know, today is a day in which we celebrate fathers. It's the, we should celebrate our fathers all the time, but this is the one day of the year in particular that we set aside to, to honor our fathers and to give thanks to them for the role that they've had in our upbringing, providing for us, meeting our needs, and turning us into the people that we have become. And so today we're going to continue and, Lord willing, conclude this series on the Holy Spirit that I've been working through for a little more than half a year. This is part three in the spirit of adoption, and what we're looking at is the Holy Spirit's ministry in establishing and guarding our relationship with God as our Heavenly Father. And so as we begin, I want to pose a question. What comes to mind when I say the word Father? No doubt many of us have good memories. Uh, I know that I uh, grew up in a, a wonderful home. My dad taught me the word. He prayed with me. He took me fishing a lot. And uh, these are all wonderful ministry or wonderful memories that I have. And yet, I also recognize um, that not everybody has the same experience. And for some, perhaps, even the memory of a father could be painful uh, due to strain in the relationship, or or maybe the fact that um, they're no longer here. And so, I don't want to to spend too much time on this question of what comes to mind when you think of the word father. But I do want to direct our attention to our Heavenly Father, who I can promise you is better than we could ever dream. And He wants to have a relationship with you, a Christian. And so, uh, this is a sermon about the Holy Spirit bringing us into a relationship with our perfect Heavenly Father through the redemptive work of Christ. And before we dive straight into the text, I want to do just a little bit of review. This is the third part in a a somewhat of a topical series that I've done. And the reason that I wanted to do this series in particular is because it seems like there's so much confusion around the Holy Spirit. And so in the first part, we just looked at what does the Bible from cover to cover have to say, uh, a 30,000 foot level overview about who the Holy Spirit is what he has revealed about himself in the inspired word of God. And in the second part, we saw specifically that his focus is to accomplish redemption by replacing our hearts of stone with hearts of flesh. That means that he's actively at work in us to transform our desires, our will, and even our thoughts. And so it's essential then to note from the clear teaching of Jesus, that the Holy Spirit's ministry is about Jesus. If we get that right, we can avoid a lot of the errors that we see today. John 16, verses 13 and 14 says that when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. This is Jesus speaking. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. And so, whatever, whenever we are looking at the ministry of the Holy Spirit, we ought to be seeing that his goal is the glorification of Christ, according to the clear teaching of Jesus. And so, as we look to the book of Romans, then as is always the case in every passage of Scripture, we should understand that this is part of a larger context. The passage that we're going to be looking at in Romans 8, verses 11 through 17 in a few minutes, is not isolated. You can't chop up any book of the Bible and expect to be able to interpret it well. And so the Jews in the early 40s had been kicked out of the city of Rome under the Emperor Claudius. (coughs) Excuse me. The Jews had been kicked out of Rome in the early 40s, and overnight the church in Rome became mostly Gentile because of that political action. And then in the 50s, a few years before this letter was written, all of a sudden they were permitted to re-enter the city of Rome, 
And so you had a church that was completely Gentile for more than a decade. All of a sudden now they have all of these Jewish Christians as well. And everybody wants to worship together, but nobody can get along because of their cultural differences. And so that's the historical context that the book of Romans was written in, and I believe to address. And so Paul lays out this explanation then of our spiritual union with Christ in chapter 6. It says in verses 5 and 8 of chapter 6, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also will live with him. And so this is a, a, an anchor point in the book of Romans, our spiritual union with Christ. And Paul is still building on this topic as we come into chapter 8 here. We have to understand that the union with Christ that we have is what's really at the heart of the gospel. Right? Jesus came, he lived the life that we couldn't, he went to the cross, and he died. And because he died, we have died. You see, we're, when we're united with Christ, we share in his death in order that we will share in his resurrection because we know that he didn't stay dead. Jesus is, in fact, risen from the grave. And so we move forward then in chapter 7. Paul introduces the Spirit into the discussion. And he, he starts comparing the, the law on the one hand and, and the Spirit on the other. And he comes to the conclusion that the law is not bad because it shows us our need for Christ... But our eternal life is based on our union with Christ, not on our ability to just do good things. The flesh cannot earn peace with God through obedience. And that's why when we get to chapter 8, verse 1, where it says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is such good news. Because apart from Christ, there is nothing other than condemnation. And so Paul explains that the Holy Spirit is the one who is doing this uniting work in us, uniting us to Christ and applying his redemptive work on the cross to us as lost, spiritually dead souls in great need of a Savior. And so acknowledging that we can't do anything to save ourselves, we come to the realization that if you are a Christian, it is because the Holy Spirit is working in your heart. If you're a Christian, it's because the Holy Spirit is working in your heart. In fact, the, the scripture says right here in Romans chapter 8 that anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. And so through the work of the Spirit, then, we are united with Christ. And the main thing that I want to drive home this morning is that our relationship with Christ is meant to be experienced. Adoption, which is, is what the, the focus textually here is, is the saving work of the Holy Spirit as he applies the redemptive work of Christ by helping us to take off the flesh, put on Christ, and experience our relationship with God now and forevermore. And so I've got four headings for you this morning. Is redemption secured? Redemption victorious? Redemption enjoyed? And redemption yet to come? And this is the gist of it, that the same spirit that resurrected Christ indwells in believers, that's number one. Number two, sin can only be killed through the life-giving power of the Spirit. Number three, the Holy Spirit facilitates an experiential relationship between the Father and His children. And number four, the Spirit's ultimate ministry of adoption is to bring us to life beyond the grave. And so with these things in mind, let's pray, and then we'll dive into the text. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a good father. We thank you that you are our father and that you have intentionally sought us out 
not because of the works that we have done, but because of your grace. You have loved us enough to pursue us. You were not satisfied to leave us dead in our sins and under condemnation. You sent the Son, Jesus, to go to the cross and to bear our penalty. And then he rose again. And now by the work of the Spirit, we have this ministry, this adoption as sons, a great inheritance which waits for us. So Lord, I ask for your help this morning as I exposit your word. I pray that you would hide me behind the cross and that perhaps you would preach a better sermon than the one that I have prepared. We ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. And so let's read our text now, chapter 8 of the book of Romans, verses 11 through 17. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the flesh, of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. And so point number one, redemption secured. The Spirit's ministry is to apply Christ's work to believers. Verse 11 says that if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. And I hope that at this point you can already hear the echoes of John 16, as I read earlier, that it is the goal of the Holy Spirit to glorify Jesus Christ. We should not drive a wedge between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit and their purpose of redemption. The Father decrees, the Son atones, and the Spirit applies the work to the believer. And so it makes sense then that Paul begins his discussion of the Holy Spirit by emphasizing Jesus' resurrection in connection with the Holy Spirit. Twice, Paul mentions that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. And we cannot make too much of the resurrection, dear brothers and sisters. It's truth. The resurrection is the fact of history by which all men will be judged. 1 Corinthians fifteen seventeen says that, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Christianity is not about becoming your best self. It's about the fact that Jesus died and rose again. It's not just a, a cultural tradition or a, a list of principles that we should follow to live our best life now. But Christianity is ultimately about the cross. But the cross is about more than just being like Jesus. The cross is about more than just being a good citizen. The cross is about the defeat of death. Brothers and sisters, Christ has gone before us not only as a sacrifice to satisfy the wrath of God on our behalf, but in fact to blaze a trail into the resurrection. Jesus was raised to life in a physical body. And I wonder if we ever think about Christ having ascended to heaven with a physical body. Or if perhaps we just kind of focus on the spiritual aspects of the risen Christ. But it dawned on me as I was studying that post-resurrection, Jesus tells Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. If Jesus was only a spirit, you couldn't have touched him. A few verses later, we see him eating breakfast with Peter on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. If he was only a spirit, he wouldn't have been eating. And perhaps it seems like a little bit of a tangent to belabor this point, but I think it's relevant. Because Christ is our example of what to expect 
about the resurrected life in the new heaven and new earth. And he didn't shed his body when he ascended to heaven. Actually, his body is a key aspect of his dominion. Revelation 14, 14 says, Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head. It seems to indicate that his being one like a son of man is integral to his kingship. And so, you might say that we were created in the image of God, but he represents us before the Father like a son of man. Having a physical resurrected body, he continues his priestly ministry forever seated at the right hand of the Father, interceding on our behalf. And of course, there are are things about the resurrected Christ that are, are somewhat obscure to us. After all, we see him passing through locked doors and and appearing suddenly, right? But he's not unfamiliar, and that's the point, as he is our example. We've been given a promise that because the Holy Spirit dwells with believers, all who believe in Jesus will not only experience a relationship with God now, but a future resurrection and glorification, which is our final destination and our ultimate hope as believers. I think we can simplify it to say that ultimately we are Christians because we believe in the resurrection. That is what we anticipate. That is what we hope for. And I I don't think that we, we really think about this very much. Right? This doctrine of the resurrection of the body is not one of the more practical emphases of the church in our society these days. It always seems like it's far off, right? It's like when you're driving through the desert to go to a town and and you kind of pop over a hill and the road is long and straight and you can see this city off in the distance and then you drive for an hour and it's not really moved. That's what we feel like the resurrection of the body is. But I want to tell you, dear friends and brothers, that as surely as Jesus is risen from the dead, one day too we will rise from the grave. And the redemption of the body is so sure that the apostle speaks of those who have passed from this life as believers as merely having fallen asleep in Christ, as though they're about to wake up. I hope this is a comfort to you, brothers and sisters, as you grow older as all of us are in different phases of life, but we know that we have the same destination. As the mind and the body begin to break down, God will not abandon you. He has given you a spirit of adoption. And the spirit's ministry of adoption finds its destination in the resurrection of the body. And so next we see that the Spirit's guarantee of this resurrection is our basis for putting to death the deeds of the flesh. Heading number two is redemption victorious. The Spirit's ministry then is to kill sin in us in order to prepare us to receive our inheritance. Verses 12 and 13 say, So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh to live according to the flesh, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Now, that's an interesting jump here, right? Resurrection of the body, killing sin. And this is Paul's logic. We have the Spirit dwelling in us, so we will be resurrected. Therefore, Put the flesh to death by the power of the flesh? No, by the power of the Spirit. And so the text tells us that we are debtors. And this word can be a little bit confusing because it's used in Scripture uh, to describe sin, right? We think about Colossians chapter 2, which says our record of debt has been canceled. So why then are we described as debtors here? I think the simplest explanation for that is that it simply means someone who has an obligation to fulfill. 
And so in the context of being outside of Christ, we have an obligation to pay for our sins. Christ comes, he comes to us, he rescues us, he applies his blood to us. We share in his death, one day too we'll share in his resurrection. We're not under the obligation to pay that debt anymore. But because we have the Holy Spirit living in us, we do have an obligation to put to death the deeds of the flesh. And I don't believe, brothers and sisters, that this in any way undermines God's grace. The fact that our salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It's quite the opposite. It's actually only by the power of the Spirit that we can kill the sin in our lives. And so God not only calls us into life, but he gives us what's necessary to accomplish what we can't accomplish on our own. You cannot kill the flesh with flesh. It's like trying to save someone from drowning by pushing them underwater. It's like trying to stitch up a cut on your finger by cutting off your hand. Or trying to fix a gas leak with a torch. It won't work. Even clinging to creeds and confessions without a heart that's right before the Lord is not enough to make you right in the presence of God. In fact, it can be a fast track to becoming a Pharisee. It's so easy, brothers and sisters, to get caught up in the hamster wheel of works-based righteousness. And even after we come to Christ to say, okay, Lord, I've got it. I've seen the light. You can go sit down now. I'm going to take care of my sanctification. I'm going to become like you under my own power. And when you're burnt out from trying to reach an impossible standard by the flesh, which is completely unable to achieve the goal, the enemy will be pleased to take advantage of you and to present you with an opportunity to sin against the Christ that you say you love. It is by the grace of God supplied in the power of the Holy Spirit that we must put to death the deeds of the flesh. In fact, there's a warning here, and this is a strong warning. You must put to death the deeds of the flesh. Now, in the ESV, it's not extremely clear, but Paul actually abandons his thought where he's going in order to give us this warning. In the phrase, not to the flesh, he abandons his thought to warn us that we must kill the flesh. And so it gives us a sense of urgency in Paul's mindset. Grace is always transformative. And you have received the spirit of adoption, so you belong to Christ. Therefore, you will be resurrected. And now there's a change in tone. And yet sin is still dangerous. It must still be conquered. And it will only be conquered by the grace and the power of the Holy Spirit. But by grace, God works in you to put off the old man and put on Christ. By grace, God comes to dwell in you as a guarantee and a seal that he will carry you safely through this life, transforming you into the image of Christ along the way until you receive the resurrection of the body. So we have this language about killing the flesh. What does that mean? Well, I want to be very clear that I'm not speaking about doing literal damage to your body. This is a Hebraism that refers to human nature and sin nature. And so killing the flesh is rooting up the deep indwelling sins in our hearts, the things that would come between us and God, the things that we don't want to let go of that we're willing to commit other sins in order to maintain. These are the things that are positioned as opposite of the spirit. And in this context in particularly, it's about using the law to grow in holiness instead of God's grace, which is supplied by the Spirit. It's engaging in the spirit of fear because when we're afraid, our desire for control goes up. And when we want to control, when we will do anything for control, we're putting ourselves in God's seat. Sometimes it's easy if we're honest with ourselves to forget that we're not God. 
And so how do we know that we're not acting in the flesh? I think that's another important question to ask. And the text gives us this answer. All who are led by the Spirit are sons of God. To be led by the Spirit is another thing that we need to clarify because it's not talking about these kind of mystical experiences that are so prevalent. It's not talking about listening to the small, still voice that would have you to to do something contrary to what God has revealed in black and white in front of you. It's not to submit to your feelings and emotional impulses. To be led by the Spirit is to be put on a Godward trajectory. That's the way that it's used in Galatians 5 as Paul begins to talk about the works of the flesh versus the fruit of the Spirit. And the conclusion then is that to be led by the Spirit is to reap a harvest of the fruits of the Spirit. And so, brothers and sisters, we don't need to add our own rules and to put up safeguards everywhere that we can. Make no mistake that killing the flesh is important. We must absolutely go to war against the sin in our lives, but we must do so according to the Spirit-inspired Word of God by the grace which lives within us as we have received the spirit of adoption. And I would just ask you, brothers and sisters, does the glory for your holiness go to Christ? Does he get the credit when someone gives you a compliment? Of course, we have our our Christianese lingo, lingo, you know, praise the Lord, But what's really going on in the heart when you receive these kinds of compliments? What's the most powerful force in your life? Is it embarrassment? Is it fear? Or is it love for God? And how strongly do the promises of God affect your heart? Are they just the portion of the Bible that you kind of gloss over as you're looking for instructions on what to do? Remember, the Spirit's ministry is in the resurrection of the body. That's, that's the thrust of the passage here. And so Paul's jump from the ministry of the Spirit in the resurrection of the body to killing sin means that we should understand our obedience to God flows out of our looking forward to the resurrection which God has promised us. That's what it means to put to death the deeds of the flesh. We're living in the already and the not yet. We have already been adopted as sons, and yet we have not yet received our inheritance. But we look forward to that inheritance, and that is what pushes us to put the flesh to death, to kill sin. It's that longing and anticipation for the day when everything will be made right when we receive our final inheritance from Jesus Christ. And so absolutely, we are to be set apart from the world in order to enjoy the eternal life, which is rightfully ours, but we're not yet removed from the world. And this truth should guide us away from from legalism and into true holiness I mean, I've talked with people, they struggle, if you can get them to be honest, they'll struggle with feeling as though God owes them something because they've done all the right things, they've gone to church their whole life, they've prayed the right prayers, they ask God for forgiveness every time they do something wrong, and yet they're absolutely scared to death of God because in their mind it's entirely works-based. And so all of these church things just become the work which they think that they're going to do in order to earn God's favor. Do you constantly make comparisons against other believers? Have you found peace with God as your loving, kind, and merciful Heavenly Father? Or is He simply a harsh judge that you will never, ever be able to please? 
The reality, brothers and sisters, the truth that the Apostle Paul wants us to know is that by the spirit of adoption, we are able to really put to death the deeds of the flesh because of the promises of God, not because of the law. Point number three is redemption enjoyed. And so the Spirit's ministry then is to facilitate an eternal and experiential relationship with God. So we've been promised a resurrection. We've been given the power that we need to put to death the deeds of the flesh in anticipation for that resurrection. And now we see that God calls us into a real living relationship with him through the spirit of adoption's ministry. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And so notice the opposition of the spirit of slavery and the spirit of adoption, which I believe is intended to accent the the greatness of the adoption that we receive by the spirit. Keeping the law in the flesh brings death. It brings bondage to guilt and it cannot satisfy God's requirements for righteousness. It brings fear and consequently you will never have joy. And through the ministry of the Spirit we not only receive the forgiveness of sins and the power to kill sin but we're brought into the family of God. And so I ask you which one is greater, a slave or a son? And consider these two examples from the Bible. Joseph was at the top of Potiphar's house. Everything in Potiphar's house was under Joseph's control. Joseph in the coat of many colors. He was sold as a slave, sent to Egypt. He had power. And yet in an instant, it was all lost because of a false accusation against him. He was thrown into jail and left to rot. And on the other hand, consider Absalom, who by our account was not a a good guy. He betrayed his father David and spent many years trying to steal his throne. And yet when Absalom died, how did David respond? He wept and he cried out, Oh, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, would I had died instead of you. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. David had spent years on the run because of Absalom, and yet he grieved his death. He grieved the death of his son. And so which one is greater, the slave or the son? What we have, brothers and sisters, is far greater than keeping the law and just being right. We have a relationship of grace with our Heavenly Father. And unlike Israel at Mount Sinai, who was told to stay far away from the mountain as Moses is going up to receive the Ten Commandments for fear that they would be struck dead, we are told to come into the presence of God boldly as a command. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. Hebrews 4.16. And so this ministry of adoption can be summarized in two parts. It's communion with God now and resurrection yet to come. Well, our passage states that it is by the spirit of adoption that we cry out, Abba, Father. And many commentators today will tell you that that's a word that is akin to daddy, the way that we would use it like a small toddler looking up at their father. I think it's more significant that This is the way that Jesus referred to his heavenly father in his darkest hours. It shouldn't be lost on us that this is the way that Jesus taught us to pray. Abba, Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And when he's in the garden of Gethsemane and blood is pouring from his forehead as he's he's sweating under the intense pressure of what he's about to endure, He cries out, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. 
This is a unique way that Jesus talked about his father in prayer. So the tenderness of this expression then points us to the fact that our adoption enables and encourages us to come to God in the darkest moment of our lives. We're not only invited but commanded to cry out to God, our Heavenly Father, for salvation from our sins, for faith when we feel our faith failing, for hope when the world around us grows cold to Christ and His church. And though the quality of our relationship with God will suffer if we do not put the deeds of the flesh to death, our status as an adopted son of God will not be taken. But this is, this is a relationship with God that is intended to be experienced. And that's the point. The ministry of adoption as intended to be experienced is spelled out this way as Paul writes the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God and this is the only time in this passage that our spirit is is mentioned and what we see is the spirit of God working within us and our own spirit crying out in unison toward our heavenly father it's a delicate moment The Spirit works in us as believers so that we testify alongside of Him about this glorious truth of our adoption. The Spirit's ministry of adoption is intended to impact the deepest part of our being. And that's why I say this is an experiential relationship. We cry out having deeply felt and intensely experienced the overwhelming nature of God's adopting grace as we experience the confirmation and assurances of the promise of God that are given in Scripture. And when we internalize them by faith, we take them on as promises that are given to us as sons of God. Brothers and sisters, our relationship with God should affect the deepest, hardest part of our heart. And so this is a call to commune with God as your heavenly Father in the Spirit. We are like small children who would reach up to our Father, just wanting to be held. Our relationship with God is so much deeper than just the forgiveness of our sins, as if that were a small thing. It's as though we stood before the judge, guilty of a capital crime, and while expecting the death sentence, he clears us of our guilt. And he doesn't stop there. He invites us into his home permanently. He gives us his name. He spends time with us. Not only that, he provides for us and he protects us and he disciplines us in order to teach us. And then he makes us the sole heir of his entire estate. Well, how often, dear Christian, we take for granted the richness of our relationship with God. Don't turn the Christian faith into mere law keeping. Obey God's commands as they are revealed in Scripture because you're a member of God's house. Learn the deep things of God in Scripture. He wants you to know who he is. Learn to pray through the scriptures, all of scripture, so that you may experience the fullness of joy and the strengthening of your faith in the presence of God in those times when it's just you and the Lord. God wants us to enjoy him. Psalm 73, 25 and 26 says, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Psalm 1611 says, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Oh, brothers and sisters, if only we could see how short-lived the pleasures of the world is, are. What God is offering you in a relationship with him is nothing short of eternal joy. Will never fade. 
But the Apostle Paul makes this more explicit for us in Philippians chapter 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Brothers and sisters, does your relationship with God lead you to rejoice and delight in Him? In your darkest moment, can you turn to your Heavenly Father and cry? We have hope. We have hope. So then joy is the goal of our adoption. So we should not submit to the spirit of fear which will steal our joy. We are to enjoy God. And our relationship with God by the spirit of adoption is living and experiential. And he will carry us through until we receive our inheritance. Next heading is redemption yet to come. And we've already covered some of this in the first point. But I I want to take a little bit of a different perspective here. The Spirit's ministry is to ensure that we receive the inheritance which was promised to us in Christ. The text says, And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. We've already discussed that a resurrection is coming. That is the guarantee that we have because of the fact that Jesus is alive. And I don't want to repeat myself, but I want to draw your attention to something important. In Roman culture, one of the chief motivations for adopting people was to name an heir. And while it's, it's important that we understand the relational aspect of our adoption in Jesus Christ... Make no mistake that we have been named as co-heirs with Christ. In fact, this principle was so prevalent in Roman society that that was often how rulers would establish an heir if they wanted to control who was going to take over their reign when they died. They would adopt people, often as adults, to ensure that they would receive the same position that they had as a ruler over that part of society, whatever that may be. And so having received the spirit of adoption and being named as co-heirs with Christ, our inheritance is fit for an eternal king, a king whose dominion is everlasting, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And so Paul's final point in this passage is that we are to look to our inheritance as motivation to endure the trial. Brothers and sisters, we are called to suffer for Christ. There is no doubt about that. We will face anxieties, heartbreaks, and possibly even persecution because we claim the name of Jesus. And while we suffer in this life, we must have our gaze fixed upon the life which is to come. That is the only thing that will carry us through. And I want to tell you, brothers and sisters, that the best is yet to come. We have not yet received our eternal reward. We will rise from the grave. God will redeem our bodies, and he will complete our salvation and make us better than what Adam and Eve had even in the Garden of Eden. Because no longer... Now that we have been adopted into his family and we will receive the inheritance of our adoption, no longer will there be the possibility or threat of sin. We see in the final pages of the Bible, Revelation 21, 3 through 5, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Brothers and sisters, our adoption is just a small taste of what is still to come. 
And so the cross becomes like a viewpoint on top of a mountain. I don't know if, if you've ever been on a hiking trail where you make it up to the top of the mountain and you look out and you can see for miles. You can see rivers running through the land. You can see towns and cities off in the distance. You can even see other mountain peaks. This is what the cross should become for us. When we enter into a moment of trial and suffering, we look to the cross, ascending to that viewpoint where we would gaze upon the vastness of the eternal inheritance which waits for those who know and love Jesus as their personal Lord and Savior and are secure in Christ. This is the ministry of the spirit of adoption to assure us of the riches that wait for us when our adoption is finally complete. And so hopefully you can see the ministry of the Spirit at work in your life, brothers and sisters, to bring you these four realities of knowing God. I want to spend just a few more minutes looking at some ways that we might practically apply these truths as we try to navigate life in a fallen world. Firstly, it helps us manage our expectations. We live in a fallen world. Everyone experiences pain. Everyone experiences desire that we ought not have. We're always pining for things that we wish we could have or experiences that we could participate in. Perhaps money, perhaps relationships. Idols of the heart. And the worst part about living in a fallen world is that it means that other people sin against us in the process of sinning against God. People are sinners. And creation is crying out because it has been corrupted to the core by rebellion. Brothers and sisters, we should not expect to find heaven on earth. But there is heaven yet to come. And when this life is overwhelming, we have an inheritance. When the culture turns against Christ, we have an inheritance. When the mind and the body begin to break down as we pass through death's doorstep, oh, brothers and sisters, we have an inheritance which is unfading that only begins at our resurrection from the dead. Reality is that the brokenness of this world, the desires of the heart that continue to go unfulfilled, point us to the fact that we need Jesus. That Jesus is the only thing that can satisfy And brothers and sisters, dear friends, there is coming satisfaction that we cannot imagine if we know the one who holds pleasure in his right hand forevermore. Secondly, we need to recognize that not all will be saved. There is a great distinction between those who belong to God having the spirit of adoption and the world, which is passing away. I would be remiss if I didn't warn you, brothers, sisters, friends who are here, that you need to turn away from your sin and to experience the redemptive work of Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit, if this is not the hope that you cling to every day of your life. You need to understand that the only thing waiting for you on the other side of death's door is God's just judgment and eternal hellfire. That's sobering. But the fact is that this present world is passing away. And the pleasures that you cling to which would keep you from surrendering complete control over to God, they will come to an end. And you simply do not know how many more opportunities the Lord is going to give you to experience his grace, to repent of your sin, and to follow Jesus into an eternal inheritance. And the more that you reject his grace, the less likely you are to ever experience it. Whether we feel like we're pretty good people or whether we're the vilest criminal on planet Earth, we come to the foot of the cross with the same need. We all need sufficient transforming grace for the forgiveness of sin and the resurrection of the body to take us into our eternal inheritance. Our only hope, dear friends, is to turn from our sins. 
believe that Jesus Christ died and rose again and walk in the spirit of freedom. Enjoy the ministry of adoption that the spirit applies when we come to Jesus by faith alone. I'm telling you, there is no greater pleasure than to know God. Only in knowing God can you have the fullness of joy. So whatever it is that is holding you down, it is worth forsaking in order to know him. And lastly, I just want to give a word of encouragement to those for whom Father's Day may be difficult because of loss or strained relationships. I want you to know that you have a heavenly father who is far better than any earthly father ever could be. Lean into your relationship with him because it's the only one that will last through eternity. Cry out to him for mercy and grace and know that the father's love without which there is without end, the father's love without end and without cost belongs to you. There is sufficient grace for you and hope in the life to come. And so as we conclude this morning, our relationship with God is meant to be experienced. Adoption is the saving work of the Spirit as he applies the redemptive work of Christ by helping us to take off the flesh and to put on Christ and experience our relationship with God beginning now throughout the rest of eternity. Through the Holy Spirit, we have the assurance of the resurrection. Through the Holy Spirit, we are to kill sin as we anticipate the life to come. Through the Holy Spirit, we can have deep personal communion with our Heavenly Father. And through the Holy Spirit, we will receive an inheritance which is fit for a king. Brothers and sisters, understanding and experiencing our adoption into the family of God is critical for the Christian life. So with these things, I want to leave you with one final word from the Lord. Beloved, we are now God's children, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. Grace and peace to you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. We're so thankful that you're our Father. That regardless of what circumstance would bring us here today, you're still the Father. That your grace is sufficient and that it's only by your grace that we can put to death the deeds of the flesh. It's only by your grace that we can have assurance of our salvation. It's only by your grace that we will be raised from the dead one day. And so, Lord, I ask that you would give us the faith to look forward when this life becomes overwhelming. Help us to look forward, Lord, in our moment of weakness. We need you. And this morning you've reminded us through your word that you're there. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.